All right, well, let's go to God's Word as we're in week number eight in a study through the New Testament book of James that we're calling When Faith Grows Up. In this book, James, the half-brother of Jesus, tells us what mature Christian faith really looks like. Now, in case you're wondering how many more weeks of sermons are to go in this series, let me just give you the answer, four after today. So I'm taking James on sabbatical with me. So me and James will be back when I get from, back from sabbatical, and we'll finish up the, the back half of the series uh, down the road. Our study this morning brings us to chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. Let's go ahead and read what James has to say, starting in verse 1. He says this to the Christians that he's writing to. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace? That is why Scripture said God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Well, there's a lot there in these 10 verses. And I think at first read, when you read through that, it kind of seems like James is addressing several different topics, kind of like in rapid fire succession. But it's important that you understand all 10 of these verses actually go together. They revolve around verse four. Look at verse four once again. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. What James is addressing with these 10 verses is worldliness and its cure. So here's the idea. When, when faith grows up, the result will be less worldliness in a Christian's life and more godliness. Less living like the world and for your own glory and more living for God and his glory. That's the mark of someone who is growing up in their faith. Worldliness is getting less and less and less and godliness is increasing more and more and more. Now let me give you two points of clarity as we dig in. First, it's important to understand friendship with the world here doesn't mean that you can't be friends with non-Christian people. Listen, we're, we're called to love people in the world, whether they be Christian or non-Christian. How are we going to reach the world if we first don't befriend them? 
Jesus befriended sinful people all the time, and as a result, many of them he led to eternal life. And so think about this. There is a reason that the self-righteous religious leaders accused Jesus of being a friend of who? Sinners. Jesus absolutely had no problem being a friend of the lost, so it's okay to have friends who are not Christians. That's not what James or the Bible means by friendship with the world. Rather, the idea is this, be in the world, but not of it. Okay, don't live like the world does is what James is trying to say here. Second point of clarity, friendship with the world doesn't necessarily mean that every time you're, you sin, you are in this intimate friendship with the world. How many of you know that sin can trip us up? Even, some, even sometimes we're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I did that. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Okay, it's possible to sin and, and not really be a friend of the world. So friendship with the world means more than you just got tripped up by sin. I want you to notice the word friend in the text. It's the Greek word philos, and it means a friend someone dearly loved and a personal, experiential, bonded, intimate way. Now, phila, which is one of the words that the Greeks used for love, is derived from this word, philos. Philadelphia, the city of what? Brotherly love. That's where that comes from, this Greek word. So what is James trying to say here? What, What James says here is, Friendship with the world is the idea of having a strong love and determined affection. It's an intimate relationship with. It's a desire to willfully and openly embrace the ways of the world. It's, it's a type of wisdom and a type of living that is man-centered, flesh-controlled, and Satan-influenced. We talked about this last time in James chapter 3. Let me take you back there for just a moment. And James is addressing the wisdom of the world here. And he says, look at this, verse 15, such wisdom, talking about how the world lives, does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, that's man-centered, unspiritual, that's flesh-driven, demonic, that's Satan-influenced. And you understand, Satan has filled this world with all kind of lies about how we should live. And so, Let me put this together. Living by the world's wisdom, embracing it, partnering with it, being involved in an intimate, experiential relationship with it is a good definition of what worldliness is. That's the issue that James is addressing in our text this morning. I mean, I want want to remind you that James here is writing to Christians. He's not writing to non-Christians here. So what he's saying is, too many Christians in friendship with the world, and that shouldn't be. James is just so in our face, isn't he? I mean, what he's saying here is, Christians, it's time for you to grow up in your faith. And that involves allowing the Lord to get the world out of you. You see, when when we become a Christian, Jesus comes into our world, doesn't he? And because he loves us and because he understands the destructiveness that sin will bring into our life, what he does is he goes to work to get the world out of us. This is, this is why when you come to church and hear the word of God preached, you feel conviction. Because God is looking to sanctify you. That means he's trying to get the world out of you and get godliness into you. 
Conviction is how the sanctification process starts in your life, with, with, with conviction about the ways of the world that you're embracing. This is why a lot of non-Christians, by the way, avoid church at all cost. Do you understand that? Because they're just too in love with the ways of the world and they don't want to give it up. It's too convicting. This is why also many Christians who are immature in their faith find themselves distancing themselves from church. Because the conviction about the ways of the world that they love is just too much. In this passage, James gives us the cure for worldliness. But before he does that, he tells us a couple other other things about it. Let's go through those first two things, and then we'll get to the cure last. First, James addresses the cause of worldliness. There are three approaches to life that if you live by any one of them, base your way of life on, on them, it will breed worldliness in your life. It will keep worldliness rooted in your life. It'll encourage it. It'll, it'll make it grow. It'll feed it in your life. Let me give you those three approaches. The first approach that grows worldliness in a person's life is a hedonistic approach to life. Number one, a hedonistic approach to life. Look what James says in verse one. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Now, I want you to notice that word desires there. Focus in on that. I have it highlighted on the screen. It's the Greek word hedone, and it means sensual pleasure, what is enjoyable to the natural physical senses. This Greek word is where we get our English word heathen or heathen from. So a heathen or a hedonistic person is someone who centers their life around seeking the pleasures of the flesh at all cost. So think about it. It's the playboy mentality. If it feels good to me, do it. If my flesh likes it, then it must be okay. Can I just say that is a surefire way to grow godliness in your life? That is a surefire way to fall in love with the world. That's a surefire way to end up being enslaved and staying enslaved to your sin. You say, what do you mean? Well, here's the thing. Do you understand the world courts your flesh? The world says, the world's ways, its philosophies, its, its, its ways of living, do you understand, are aimed to seduce your flesh by way of temptation. Remember what James said back in chapter 1, verse 14, when he was dealing with temptation? Let me take you back there for just a second. James said, every person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil what? There it is, desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Do you understand worldliness brings death? It destroys things in your life. It's deadly. You know, sometimes I hear people say things like, well, if my flesh desires something and I'm created by God, then he must have put that desire in me. Can I just say something to you? Not every desire you have is from God. God created us to be like him, holy, but sin, when it entered the world, it broke our flesh. Our bodies, because of our sinful nature, desires to do sinful things, and it it, it doesn't really care what God has to think. 
That's why you cannot take a hedonistic approach to how you live out your life. This is why according to 2 Corinthians 10, 15, that we as Christians must learn to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. We've got to learn to take every desire if it doesn't line up with what God wants captive and make it obedient to Christ. Why? Because you can't trust your flesh apart from God. You can't trust your fleshly desires apart from the Word of God. Turn to your neighbor and say, you can't trust your flesh apart from God. Can I tell you, this is why the written Word of God, and we talk about this often, is so very important in your life because it helps you discern discern what desires are of God and which ones are of the flesh. Look what it says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. It says, for the word of God is active and alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to, what is the word of God to do? Dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the attitudes, the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. This is why the word of God is so important. You know what it's going to do? You get into it and get serious. It's going to sort real quick what desires are from your flesh and what desires are from God. Can I tell you a surefire sure fire sign that someone is, is, is living by a hedonistic approach of life is they're always trying to distance themselves from God's word. They try and explain it away. They twist it. They take verses out of context because, listen, when you really take the word of God seriously, you know what you're going to find out? It's really sharp and it's really quick to divide. It's going to expose worldliness in your life in, 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 in a sharp razor blade instant. Look what the Apostle Paul said to the Roman Christians. This is really the same thing that James is saying in, in James 4. It's just kind of being said in a different way. Paul says to the Christians there, I urge you, brothers and sisters, so he's talking to Christians, in view of God's mercy, otherwise in light of the fact that God saved you, you're a Christian. You're going to heaven one day. In view of that, Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Now look what he says in verse 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. Don't live like the world does. You understand there's, a, there's, there's worldliness out there. There's a, there's a way that the world lives. You, you can't conform yourself. Okay? You, can't get, you can't mold your life after that. Don't do that. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Do you understand the world will pray? It will pray on your flesh. That's why you can't take a hedonistic approach to life. It will, it will root worldliness in your life, not godliness. It will grow worldliness in your life, not godliness. It won't help you get worldliness out of your life. It'll keep it rooted in your life. And when you allow worldliness to keep rooted in your life, it bears bad fruit. The opposite's true. Godliness bears good fruit. So you'll never grow up in your faith if you live by a hedonistic approach to life. Nor will you grow up if you take an atheistic approach to life. Okay, no Christian would claim to be an atheist. Why? Well, because an atheist says there's no God. They live their lives without asking what God or how God wants them to live. So here's what I'm trying to communicate to you and what James is trying to say. Immature Christians have a lot in common with an atheist. They go through life believing that God exists, believing that Jesus died for them, 
they're going to heaven one day when they die, but they live in this life as if God doesn't exist. They make decisions in life without asking him. That's why James says in verse 2, watch this, you do not have because you what? You do not ask God. Otherwise, you don't have the right answers as how to, to, to meet your fleshly desires in your life in a proper way because you don't ask God. You just live how you feel. And the end result is you're going to be, go about fulfilling your desires in the wrong way. Let me give you a good, defi- good description of what sin really is. Sin is meeting a legitimate desire in an illegitimate way. In an earthly way rather than a godly way. I want you to look at the approach that Jesus took to living his life in this world. Let me take you to Matthew chapter 4. You know this well. It's the passage where Jesus had been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. And if you remember, after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, the devil tempted him three times. And what was the first temptation? It was to turn stones into bread. What's this devil's strategy there? To get Jesus to meet a legitimate desire in an illegitimate way. Is it wrong to have the desire to eat? No, but he's trying to get him to fulfill that in an illegitimate way. And and Jesus, he's not going to fall for that because he lives by the word of God. Look what Jesus said, Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, Jesus answered, it is written. You want to know how important the written word of God is? He's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. He knows the word of God. Okay, can I tell you, the better you know the word of God, the less the enemy will be able to trick you. You're going to be able to recognize, nope, that's, I got the sword in my life. It it helps me, it helps me cut this thing to to the side. Jesus said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but on, what is it? This is where Crips trips some of us Christians up. We want to live by some of the words. Every word that comes from the mouth of God. So what I'm trying to tell you is this, always consult with God about how to handle your fleshly desires. Always consult with God's written word about how to handle any desire or any decision that you may have in life. Never should we take an atheistic approach to any area of our life. To do so allows worldliness to keep its grip on us. Do you understand that's exactly where the devil wants to keep us? Enslaved to sin, far from an intimate relationship with God where he can ruin our life, ruin our testimony, and ruin our usability for the kingdom of God in this world. You will never grow up in your faith if you take an atheistic approach to life. Nor will you grow up in your faith if you take a paganistic approach to life. Look at verse 3. Starting in verse 2, once again, halfway through there, it says, do not have, you do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you did not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. This is a paganistic approach to life, all dressed up as Christianity. I ask God to bless my sinful lifestyle. Believing that if I just ask enough times, go through the religious hoops, then God somehow is obligated to bless me. Lots of Christians do this. If I just go to church enough times, if I pray enough times, then God is going to green light anything I desire. That is nothing but a form of religious worldliness. The pagans think that's how you get the God's attention. If I just go through the ritual, 
Like I get enough check marks, then God is going to do whatever I want. Listen to me. God is not a genie in a bottle to grant your every wish. He's a Lord that you're supposed to follow. So please hear me. God loves you more than you could imagine. But you've got to understand, God is not going to bless worldliness no matter how many times you ask. He'll offer his grace to you for your worldliness if you choose to receive it, but he's not going to bless your worldliness. This is what what James means by you did not receive because you asked with what? Wrong motives, with worldly motives in mind. So a hedonistic approach to life, an atheistic approach to life, and a paganistic approach to life is the cause of worldliness. It'll keep it rooted in your life. It, it'll, it'll make a stronghold in life. It'll enslave you to sin. Now, before James gives us the cure for worldliness, he also reveals to us the consequences of worldliness. I love how practical the Bible is. There are a lot of Christians who think living like the world is not really all that big of a deal, but it is. You understand there's a, there's a natural outflow. There's fruits that come from living a worldly way. There's also fruits that come from living in a godly way. Godly fruits are good. The world's fruits end up rotten in your life. First, where you find worldliness, friendship with the world, you're going to find conflict with others. Look at verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your what? Desires. Listen, people who live by their fleshly desires, people who are enslaved to the flesh, bring lots and lots of conflict wherever they go. Worldly living will end up bringing chaos and conflict into your relationships. Can I tell you, so much of the baggage we carry, so much of the family baggage we carry comes because of somebody's worldliness that they brought into the relationship we have with them. Sometimes the source of conflict is not our worldliness. Sometimes it's somebody else's worldliness. I mean, don't raise your hands, but some of you understand this. You've raised teenagers. Some of you are like, I've been through hell with my kids. You, and there's a lot of conflict and there's a lot of chaos. Do you know why that is? Is because the rebellion has brought a lot of worldliness into your relationship. And what does it produce? Conflict. Now, the the chapter breaks in the Bible, I don't know if you realize this, they're often unfortunate, okay? The The chapter breaks in verses were not a part of the original Bible when it was penned, so it's not like James sat down and said, verse one, two, okay? There, there was none of that. We added those later in the Holy Scriptures to make it easier for us to navigate, and thankfully we did, amen? Let me take you back to the end of chapter 3, because this all flows together. James, if you remember, and we talked about it last time, he was talking about living by wisdom that is from above, not wisdom that is from below. And he, he, he contrasted those two different types of wisdom. And talking about what the fruit that comes from living by earthly wisdom, talking about that type of fruit, look what he says in verse 16. For, for where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find what? 
disorder and every evil practice. When people are living by worldly wisdom, that's going to be the result of it. It's talking about the same thing, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of what? Do you know what righteousness is? It's living God's way. It's right living. And then look, we get to verse chapter four, it's continual flow. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? So once again, where does conflict come from? From our fleshly desires. And people go to great lengths to satisfy the lust of their flesh, don't they? I mean, James goes to extreme here, but look what he says in verse two. He says, he says you desire, but you do not have, so you kill. Do you understand murders happen every day because someone Someone's fleshly desires are not being met. Somebody wants revenge. Somebody wants validation. Now you say, well, I would never do that. Well, you know what the, the chosen murder tool for the church is? Gossip and slander. We like to kill people with the tongue, don't we? That happens every day because of our desire to be validated or to, to feel better about ourselves or to get even with people. That's the way we as Christian folk feel it's okay to murder, Right? He goes on to say, you, you covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you what? Quarrel and fight. Now, let me put this together for you. Here's why worldliness always leads to conflict with others. Because worldliness is based on a hedonistic approach to life. And each person's lusts and desires end up becoming the judge and jury. And each person's desires are different. So, like in the book of Judges, everybody ends up doing what is right in their own eyes. But when we live with wisdom that's from above, when God is allowed to rule and reign, it produces peace in relationships. Why? Because now you have a central authority to listen to. No longer is it, I do what is right in my own eyes. Instead, I strive to do what is right in God's eyes, regardless of what my, my desires may be. You know, one of the things I do when I go through marital, premarital counseling with couples that are getting ready to get married is I tell them, like, like, I'm like, life is tough enough as it is. If you want a healthy marriage, if you will both center your life around God yes. and then and center your marriage around God, it'll solve a lot of problems yes. because it will bring your desires together to, to honor God rather than to, to be your own God in that relationship. It gets it back to a central point where we can have commonality and we can have peace. What I want you to understand is conflict with others is always the fruit of worldly living. Now, you may have conflict with others not because of your worldly living, but how many know people can bring their worldly living and their conflict into our life? When you have conflict, somebody is not submitting to the Lord. It may be both, it may be one, but somebody's not submitting to the Lord. Second consequence of worldliness is conflict with self. Look at uh, verse 1. It says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires? Now, here's the interesting part. Look what I have in yellow. That battle what? Within you. you. Now, Romans chapter 2, verse 15. I put it in your notes. It's not on the screen. You can look it up later. Romans 2, 15 tells us that God has impressed his law on the human heart, on the human consciousness. That's true for every human being, whether they're a Christian or not. So what happens when a person lives in a sinful way is their conscience bothers them to one degree or another. 
And then when the, the sin that was so fun at first begins to hurt them or others, guilt becomes the real battle. Why do you think so many people turn to drugs and alcohol and try to numb the pain? Why do you think so many people kill themselves? I'm not saying that's always the reason for drugs and alcohol or suicide, but I'm telling you one of the main culprits of that is there's a lot of guilt. There's a lot of conflict going on on the inside of them. This this explains to you something. Some of you, this is your testimony. This This explains why when you finally turn your life over to God, often what is the testimony of that person? I've never been so at peace in my life. That's because for the first time, their conscience is aligned with God. They've experienced his forgiveness and reconciliation. And you know what it, do? it, it does? It produces tremendous peace. And then the challenge becomes for the Christian to keep ourselves aligned with God in our Christian walk. Am I right? Paul said, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. You know what the problem with a living sacrifice is? It likes to crawl off the altar. We've got to keep it there. We've got to work to keep it there, right? Come on, that was good. That was good. That is, that'll preach. That's biblical. Listen, when, when we allow worldliness to rule our life, it always leads to conflict with, with, within. It's, it's, it's just, you may have fun for a while, but eventually all that stuff's going to catch up with you at some point. Like I said, that's why there's drugs, alcohol, sex. People turn to all kinds of things to try to numb that pain. The last consequence of worldliness that James mentions is conflict with God. Look at verse 4, and this is like, you're like, Pastor, you're in our face. Listen, I'm not in, James is in your face. I'm just, just telling you what James is saying. You're glad James is going on sabbatical for six weeks, aren't you? Verse 4, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Let me, let me give you a sobering reality. When we live like the world as Christians, James says we are committing spiritual adultery. It's interesting, all throughout the Old Testament, when Israel turned away from God's ways and decided they wanted to live by the world's ways, over and over, the Old Testament calls Israel a harlot and an adulteress. Do you understand, in the New Testament, us Christians, we are called the bride of who? Christ. So friendship with the world, think about this, in embracing sin is, is actually spiritual adultery. It's cheating on God. We don't think of it that way. And what I want you to understand is friendship with the world, it it, it always destroys our fellowship with God. It means enmity against him. It makes us an enemy of him. You say, well, why does it make us an enemy of him? Are you ready for this? Because sin is his enemy. This is why, please listen to me. This is why God can't bless a sinful lifestyle. When we embrace the world, do you understand? God gets jealous. Look at it. Verse 5, or do you think Scripture says without reason that he, talking about God, jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? That's not talking about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the spirit, our spirit, us, who we are. 
Now, please let me help you understand something. Jealousy here doesn't mean God is jealous of something he doesn't have. It means he's jealous over someone he loves. Do you understand jealousy can be a good thing or it could be a bad thing? And jealousy, believe it or not, is actually a part of deep, true love for someone. I want you to think about this. I'm jealous for my kids because I love them. So because of my jealousy for them, I seek to guide them in truth. I desire for them to walk in righteousness. I want them to have the fruit of righteousness in their life, not the fruit of unrighteousness. I don't want sin to destroy their life. And that's why I discipline them and I work to guide them into truth. And I pray for them when they're off track because I am so jealous because I love them so much. I love them. I want the best for them. It's no different than with God. That's why even after you come to salvation in Jesus, God continually convicts you of sin in your life. It's why he wants to sanctify you. Do you understand? Some of us think conviction is about beating us up. No, it's God's love. God disciplines those he what? He loves. He wants what's best for you. He wants you to fulfill his purposes that he's created for you in your life. He doesn't want you to miss it. And the world can hinder all that. It can rob you of the very best that God had planned for you. So the cause of worldliness is conflict with others. It's conflict with self. And it will result ultimately in conflict with God. Are you still with me? All right. That leads James finally to the cure. Now we got a lot to go through here. And this could have been a whole other sermon. But I realized I don't have time. I almost split this in two, but I I realize this passage goes together. So I'm going to go through this quick, and it's really easy and simple to understand. Let's talk about the cure for worldliness. The cure, are you ready for this? It's God's grace. Turn to your neighbor and say, God's grace. And here's what you need to know God has a lot of it available, more than enough. Okay, look at it, verse four, but, let me tell you what that but means. As bad as worldliness is, as bad as it could be in your life right now, as much of a mess as it's made in your life right now, no matter how far away from God you may find yourself, you may be the biggest sinner in the world, but he gives us, watch this, more grace. That's the idea, he has more than enough grace for you to help you and redeem you. To redeem you out of your worldliness. But, here's the key. You have to be willing to receive it. Let me give you an example. If you had an incurable disease, and I had a pill that I could give you that would cure it, I can tell you about that pill all day long, but in order for you to be cured, what do you need? You got to take it. You got to receive it. You got to apply it to your life. Same with grace. God offers you grace, but you have to willing, be willing to appropriate it in your life. And in order for you to do that, you're going to need humility. Look at the next part of the verse. This is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the what? Okay, let me tell you what this means. I got to come to the place where I realize I don't have all the answers. I'm not as smart as I think I am. The world doesn't have all the answers. The flesh doesn't have all the answers. Taylor Swift doesn't have all the answers. Hey, wonderful singer, but her philosophies are life. I'll lead you down a path that will enslave you to sin. And I could put any... All right, I just lost half of you, but anyway. 
I don't know, that got in my spirit. I saw an interview with her this week. I'm like, what a fool. I mean, talented, love her music, but what a, I, okay, anyway. <laughs> Let me give you some principles for appropriating God's grace. Okay, we're going to go through this real quickly. Number one, relinquish control of your life. Amen. This is where it starts. If you decide you want to be in control, I mean... God will let you. And he'll be sitting here saying, when you're ready, my grace is available, but you've got to receive it. Look at this. Submit yourselves then to God. This is where it starts. If you want to receive his grace, you've got to submit yourself to him. Number two, you've got to resist the devil. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Okay? Great. You've got to first submit to the Lord. Because if you don't have the authority of the Lord in your life, what are you going to base your authority off? Your flesh? The world? Hollywood? No, you've got to submit to God first. That enables you to resist the devil. And what does it say? He will flee from you. Number three, restore worship to a priority in your life. For some of us, we're Christian. We just kind of go through the motions. But to be honest with you, we don't pursue God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We don't seek God's ways with our heart, mind, soul, and strength. You've got to learn to restore worship as the priority in your life. Because when you don't make it a priority, the world will will, will put a priority list together and throw it in your life. And you get distracted real fast. Now, I love this. Watch this. Come near to God and he will what? Here's, Here's what's so cool about this and God's grace. We're not the one, God is not the one who walks away from us. We walk away from God. Okay? We walk away from him. This, and and, and here's, here's the grace of God. Remember the story of the prodigal son? Son told the father, I want my inheritance. He says, I don't want to live under your rules anymore, father. He goes and squanders his inheritance. It brings him to the lowest point in his life. And he says, well, I better just go back to my father. Maybe he'll let me back in the door. And, and when the son decided to come near to the father again, do you know what the parable says? The father came running. You start to move towards God and draw near in just a little bit, your father's going to run to you. He's going to run to you. You've got to restore worship to a priority. You know, a lot of times people, can I just say this? It's such an excuse. Well, I've been going to church, but I don't, I don't know where God is. Come on now. If you'll run to God, he's going to run to you. If you seek him, he's going to, he's going to seek after you. All right, here's the next thing. Repent of your sinful actions. Look at this, verse 8, wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Stop being a Christian and living like the world. That's what he's saying by double-minded there. Talking about repentance. You know, a lot, of, a lot of us, we just want to say, God, I'm sorry. That's not repentance. Repentance is I'm sorry, and now I'm turning and walking your way. It's not just, the re- not just I'm sorry for sin. It's, Lord, we need to get this out of my life, and I need to replace it with righteousness instead. That's repentance. Here's the last one. Refrain from a frivolous attitude towards sin. I think this is a big one. Look at this. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, this doesn't mean as a Christian you should walk around moping. Life is terrible. He's talking about attitude here. 
Because here's the deal. If you don't have the right attitude about sin, it turns into action real quick. Look, there's just things I can't celebrate with the world like the world wants me to celebrate. I've got to have a serious attitude about sin because it's a big deal. It makes me an enemy of God. And I don't want to be in that position. So, Lord, I need a change of attitude. Not only I need a change of heart, I need a change of attitude. And, 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 and this God says, this is how, James says, this is how you appropriate God's grace. See, here's the thing. We think of God's grace as a lightning bolt. And it could be at times a lightning bolt. Otherwise, God, I need your grace. Whoa. Everything's great. Sometimes God's grace comes into your life like that. More often than not, God's grace comes in the form of a seed. His word. And you have to be willing to receive it into your heart. And over time, it bears fruit. Every word of God is a seed. It's in every word of God. Are you ready for this? Is God's grace that He wants to give you? He wants to give you. 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 But you've got to be willing to receive it. And God says, "Here's the deal. Here's here's the outcome. When you're able to embrace my grace, then I'm able to do what I do best. Look at this, James ten, four, verse ten. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will what." He'll lift you out of the pit. He'll help you in ways that you could never imagine. You allow the power of God to flow into your life in ways that you could never, ever imagine. And it all started because you received his grace in your life. Every time you receive his grace, it's also also one of those pills, if you will, that helps get worldliness out of you so that you may be all that God has called you to be. Amen. Would you bow your heads with me as we close? I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know how this message hit you, but I know it's a challenging message for me. I'm sure it's a challenging message for you, but, it, but my question to you is, do you have both feet in when it comes to your relationship with God? That's going to solve a lot of things in your life. Some of us, we want to live with one foot in the world. We want to live with one foot in, in, in our walk with God, and it, it's, it's going to be a miserable spiritual place because you're always going to be in conflict. Peace comes when you submit to the Lord. Peace comes when you make God your top priority. There's nothing like it that when you're aligned with the God of the universe. And so if you're here this morning and maybe there's some things in your life that you need to submit to the Lord in, would you do that right now? There's some things that are blocking your relationship. They're causing a lack of fellowship. Would you, would you go to the Lord and say, Lord, I bring this to you right now in the name of Jesus. And then, then maybe there's some of you in here this morning and you're just like, you know what? Uh, <laughs> I'm living double-minded, double and I, I can't do that no more. I, I've got to be two feet in when it comes to my relationship with God. So maybe you're here this morning and you're just saying, God, I rededicate my life to you this morning. We're going to do this different. We're going to do it different. I'm not going to dabble anymore. It's going to be about you being my priority. I'm telling you, when you do that, it opens up the door. It makes your life fertile for God's grace to take root in your life. Father, I just thank you for this group this morning, Lord. I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your son that died for us in order that we may receive all this grace and 
Lord, I pray for those in here this morning, Lord, as they repent, as they get back in alignment with you, Lord, I pray that you would empower them in a new and a fresh way. And Lord, I pray that it would be about you and your glory, not about them and their glory, that they may bear good fruit in the name of Jesus, that it may bear good fruit in their relationships, that it may bear good fruit within them internally, and that it may bear good fruit in their intimacy and in their relationship with you. Lord, we, we love you and we give you praise in the precious name of Jesus. We all said together, amen. Would you go ahead and stand with me? I'm going to ask our prayer partners if they go ahead and come. If you're here this morning and you need prayer, maybe it's about the message, something you want to pray about over the message. Maybe it's you've never given your life to Jesus. We'd love to pray with you. Ask, ask help, ask the Lord into your life. Uh, if you need prayer for something else, come up. Our prayer partners will be here. God bless you. Have a great Sunday. We'll see you in six weeks. Amen. Have a great day.